Welcome to Explore the Space. We're digging into healthcare issues that matter most. Our guests and conversations mine these issues for perspective and answers. There is a gulf between healthcare and our communities. This is the place to talk about it. Now here's your host, Dr. Mark Shapiro. Welcome back to Explore the Space. Uh, There is a a subject that has been just flying around. Uh, First of all, sort of the, the, the science cognoscenti, but it's really crossed over and it's now something that is being talked about across basically every media outlet, social media outlet, TV network. It's an entity called CRISPR. And CRISPR is an acronym, actually, uh, and it is something that really has taken hold. It's an acronym that when I first saw it, it took me back to the deepest, darkest times where I was doing biochemistry and things like that that were so difficult, and I didn't understand how it was going to apply to me when I became a physician. Um, but it's this it's an acronym that stands for Clustered Regularly Interspaced Short Palindromic Repeats. You don't have to memorize that. There's not going to be a test. You have probably heard of CRISPR if you're on Twitter, if you watch KPBS, NPR has been doing shows on it. Science Magazine called it the breakthrough of the year for 2015. Wired Magazine had an amazing feature article that said this is easy DNA edit, easy DNA editing that will remake the world. Now, when you see something with an acronym like this, it can feel a little bit daunting. And quite honestly, it is a little daunting. The science behind it is really complicated, but the implications and ramifications are as profound as it gets, really. So what we wanted to do was bring in an expert. We needed someone that can help us break down what CRISPR is, not at a really deep scientific granular level, but at a social level, at a level that we can say, ah, now when I see this in Time Magazine, I know what we're talking about. I can add to this conversation. I can be a part of it. Paul Knopfler is a professor at the UC uh, Davis School of Medicine. Uh, He is a biochemist deeply steeped in this and has been doing extensive research in the world of CRISPR. He was named one of the top 50 stem cell researchers in the world. He has a book out called GMO Sapiens, The Life-Changing Science of Designer Babies. I've read the book. I needed Paul. Paul, we need you. So welcome to Explore the Space. Well, thanks for having me. You've been involved with with this science and research for a long time. You've been stepping out into the public eye more and more to talk about it. Now you have this book out. Can you help us just to start us off? Where does CRISPR sort of fit in the world of science? What is it? Yeah, it's. It, I definitely would say um, there's been a lot of hype about it, but a lot of the a lot of the enthusiasm is justified. So uh, I've been working uh, doing different kinds of research for uh, longer than I should admit to because I'm getting up there, I guess. Um, but, but CRISPR really is one of those extraordinary developments where scientists and, and eventually even members of the public uh, realize, you know, we really have a revolution going on. And, and just in a nutshell, what CRISPR allows us to do is genetically change cells and genetically change organisms uh, in a relatively easy, affordable manner. And so just for context, uh, you know, in science, we use rodents for various experiments, and uh, scientists have been making genetically modified mice and rats for, you know, cancer research and heart disease research and all kinds of research, you know, for a few decades. And, and that's been a relatively slow, expensive kind of process. So it might take us, uh, you know, two years to make a genetically modified uh, rodent 
and it might take hundreds of thousands of dollars. And now with CRISPR, we can do the same thing, but we can do it, uh, I would say, at least 10 times faster, so an entire order of magnitude faster. And even cheaper, there's even a bigger difference in price. It's something that you don't need some kind of big grant to do. You can do this in a relatively uh, straightforward manner. So, for example, we can make genetically modified cells in, in theory, as little as a month. Uh, and those could even be human cells, whereas in the past it might have taken us a year or more to make those cells and much more money. And in fact, there's even a guy in the Bay Area who's selling uh, a DIY CRISPR kit. That, uh, <laughs> oh it's, it's pretty amazing. Yeah, anyone you know uh, in the public can order this kit and kind of goof around with CRISPR and try to you know genetically modify something in their garage. Uh, I don't remember the price tag, but it's you know definitely pretty affordable. So. I think this is something that's having huge ramifications in science, but it's going to, you know, trickle out into the into the public domain as well. So, give us now the backbone of CRISPR. Well, obviously, we're talking about DNA technology. Give us the broad strokes of when we say, "Okay, I'm going to buy the DNA the the DIY <laughs> garage <laughs> CRISPR kit," which I didn't know existed, and that's crazy. What are what are we doing? What are we modifying? What are we tweaking? Uh, what what are you when you're in the lab working with this technology? What what are you actually doing? Uh, so it's pretty remarkable. So we can take a, a given gene that we're interested in studying in my lab, for example, in stem cells or in cancer cells, and we can use CRISPR to change that gene. We can literally, uh, I like to use the phrase, hack into the genetic code, and we can change it up. And so um, you know that's one analogy. Um, and, and so, for example, with a gene that maybe causes cancer, we can go into cancer cells and using CRISPR, we can delete that gene, we can inactivate that gene, we can uh, enhance that gene to try to make a cancer model. And so uh, CRISPR really allows us, again, to do this kind of thing in months rather than years. And... Um, so the way that CRISPR works, the analogy I've been using, is it's kind of like a, a, a DNA Swiss Army knife. And, and so it's sort of this all-in-one tool, and it has these different tools within it. And so one tool uh, is kind of like a, a DNA scanner, kind of like a magnifying glass that allows you to zoom in on a certain gene or uh, other region of the genome that you want to be your target. And then you can kind of whip out another tool, like a little scissors in your Swiss Army knife, and CRISPR, the CRISPR system will make a cut in the DNA in the location that you want. And then finally, the third, the third sort of component is sort of like a pencil. And uh, the way that cells work when we cut their DNA is they, they desperately want to fix that as soon as possible. And because of the cutting and the fixing process, this allows us to kind of go in there with our little pencil tool and change up the A's, C's, G's, and T's uh, in the genetic code in the way that we want to. And so this turns out to be a really powerful way to go about, again, kind of recoding the system uh, of our DNA. And part of what makes this so exciting and also somewhat scary is, again, we can do this in human cells. And of course, the human fertilized egg is a cell. And so we can, in theory, uh, genetically modify human uh, 
fertilized eggs, which could then, in theory, go on to become human beings. So, a lot when, of power. When you're in the lab and you're doing this tinkering, you, you're deploying your Swiss Army knife. I mean, you've done this. It must be a rush like no other in the world of science. I mean, you are. Uh, I mean, I didn't go through my training all that long ago. This was not something that was on the radar. This must be. I mean, it must be thrilling, frightening. What is it when you're actually doing it and you see this happen? What 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 is that? What is that neurotransmitter rush that you get? It, it definitely is a rush. And and the the students in my lab who are working with CRISPR over the last year or two, uh, you know, they're very excited and. CRISPR, uh, not to go off on a tangent, but CRISPR has even sort of changed our language in the lab. And so when someone is successful at this and kind of like we're all, you know, momentarily celebrating uh, a successful experiment, we actually say, oh, you CRISPR'd that gene. We use so it's it as, becoming a verb now. It's becoming a verb. Yeah, we're, we'll, we'll talk about CRISPRing this gene. We CRISPRed that gene. And so it really is this rush because you know, not so much. I, I think the young trainees in the lab are excited, but for me, it's a, especially a rush because I've done it the old-fashioned clunky way. Right. And you know, this is sort of like you know warp speed genetic modification. So well, it's, this is really interesting. I mean, do you think this is going to stimulate a new interest in the life and physical sciences? I mean, do you think it's going to spur people who may not have gone down that road to say, "I want in"? This sounds like this sounds like fun. This sounds like an adventure. Let's do it. I think so. I've already kind of seen people express that kind of enthusiasm and energy. And, and there's definitely a whole different levels of interest in this. There's young scientists, there's people who maybe didn't train as scientists or physicians, but they just see this and, you know, maybe they were the kind of kid who had a chemistry set or, mm-hmm. um, you know, other kinds of stuff. And now it's like, wow, we can do, you know, genetics uh, with CRISPR in a way that I never thought possible. It's, you know, it's really accessible. Um, you know, there are, uh, there are complexities to it. So it's, it, it is relatively easier than things in the past, but you do need some molecular biology knowledge. Sure. Um, one of the, the people in science who's most excited about it is this uh, Harvard genetics professor, George Church. And he's actually estimated that you would probably be able to do CRISPR at home for about two thousand bucks, so um, so he he really thinks it's going to be accessible. There's a whole group of people who call themselves biohackers um, who love to kind of you know immerse themselves in science, like in the garage and other yeah. things. And so I, I can't imagine that within a year or so we're not going to see a bunch of stuff popping up from from the biohackers uh, with CRISPR. So the first thing, obviously, that leaps to mind when you use this idea of people doing it in their garage. Everyone talks about that's how Apple, that's how Microsoft started. I mean, is that what's going to happen? Do you think this is a technology that is, that's going to be leveraged and is scalable where we're going to see industries of that sort of a size kind of bursting out? I think so. I, I really? think it's, it may evolve a little bit differently than, than the, um, the computing and the internet companies did yeah. because there are, there already are uh, scientists who have uh, patent applications, and in one case, a patent was granted. But there's this whole patent dispute going on over CRISPR-Cas9, which is the full name for the system. Yeah. And um, there's already investors. I believe more than a billion dollars has already gone into cr- these few CRISPR biotechs that are out there. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's kind of one level to it. But I guess it's also possible individuals could create, for example, genetically modified organisms or GMOs mm-hmm. uh, at home, you know, if they have some molecular biology knowledge. 
And if that if that were to be viewed as a possibly valuable product, they could patent that. <laughs> right. Um, you know, you can't patent naturally occurring genes or naturally occurring organisms, but you certainly can patent a genetically modified wow. plant or animal. You uh, can just see the the unintended consequences. There are going to be lawyers who specialize in GMO patents. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I like to try to stay away from the hype machine. But as you say, if you're if this is a, a thing that is drawing the brightest heads at one of the you know some of the best universities in the world, and you know our best professors and our best scholars are are gravitating to it, and the money's starting to roll in. I mean, that's that's how it starts, right? Yeah, it really is. The pieces are kind of coming together with CRISPR in terms of the people, the the ideas, the the funding for the research. Mm-hmm. Is it's really coming together, and and I do think I, I've been following CRISPR for quite some time now, and I do think you know there there are times things kind of go uh, over the line into hype, but yeah. at the same time I do think this is pretty revolutionary. And um, what what is yeah. one of those things that you said? You know what this this is hype. There's not a lot of substance behind this. This being something that you saw in a, maybe a newspaper article or on TV or something where you said, you know what, if I had my, if I had a chance to say, hey, this is not ready for prime time, give us an example of what one of those may be. Well, I definitely have heard people talk about designer babies. Yeah. And, and so I, I do get concerned about that. And that was actually something in uh, late 2013 when I started writing my book, uh, GMO Sapiens. That was one of the things that was sort of pushing me to write a book is, is um, I, I saw people talking about this and, and often it was actually uh, people being very worried about this, that people would take CRISPR and kind of run in irresponsible directions. Mm-hmm. And again, uh, part of what makes those worries justified, I think, is that it is pretty straightforward to try to CRISPR um, human cells, for example. Again, that could be a human fertilized egg. And in fact, we saw last year, the first paper was published out of China, uh, where they actually used CRISPR to genetically modify human embryos. And that, so that's happened. That has happened one time that we know of that was published. Wow. And that, that certainly caused uh, a, a ruffle. A, a ruffle. <laughs> oh, yeah, I would say more than a ruffle. A uh, stir. Yeah. Yeah. And so some people said, you know, this is appropriate. This is going to teach us a lot. Other people were... Uh, outraged, and there was sort of a whole range of opinions uh, in between as well. And, and from what I understand, there are other research groups doing work on uh, genetically modifying human embryos. Wow! Uh, and they just haven't published it yet. Um, again, the hope would be that this work is limited to the laboratory, and once they do that, you know, these embryos uh, legally, depending on the country you're in, usually can only be grown for a few days. And used for research, but I think where some of us get concerned is there's sort of a fork in the road there, and you could take the same embryos that you've genetically modified and hire a surrogate and implant them if you're working with, say, a fertility clinic, and then boom, all of a sudden you're trying to make you know a genetically modified person. What are the safeguards that are in place to prevent that? Because as you said, this is a new thing; it's grown very, very quickly. We're not ready to do that yet. Uh, I'm not an expert in CRISPR by any stretch, but we're not ready for that. We're, society is not ready for something like that just yet. I, 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 I don't know if you agree with that statement. That's how I feel kind of off the cuff, having read your book as well. I just don't think we're ready for all of the anticipated and unanticipated ramifications of something like that yet. 
what are the are there safeguards in place to hopefully rein that in just a little bit right now while we're still figuring out what the science actually is capable of? You know, it depends on the country you're in. And, and surprisingly, the U.S. is one of the more permissive countries when it comes huh. to uh, genetic modification. And even what could be genetic modification of people, um, there's not a whole lot of uh, federal legislation that would apply in this kind of case in a definitive kind of manner. Um, this has sort of popped up on the radar screen of Congress, and Congress held a hearing on CRISPR last year. And in fact, in the 2016 appropriations bill, there's a little uh, uh, provision tucked in there that says that the FDA cannot consider um, applications that would involve genetic modification of human embryos. So that, that at least for the fiscal year 2016, yeah. means this couldn't happen in the U.S., but uh, it's a temporary measure. It wasn't sure. really super clear uh, about how far that jurisdiction would go. And certainly it would not affect private funding-based mm. efforts that might try to push forward uh, CRISPR in the human direction in the germline. Other countries, like most of Europe, have actually has laws restricting this. Um, the UK has been getting more sort of open to human modification. And also in China, there's a huge amount of interest in this area of research. And the laws there are, at best, I would say, somewhat ambiguous about whether or not someone could pursue this. And so that's, that's been one of the concerns. And, and in fact, there was a meeting at the National Academy of Sciences in December that I attended where these issues, we kind of hashed through these issues. I wasn't a speaker there, but um, I attended it and blogged about it. And, and really the question was, you know, what is the, the wisest path forward? And I had hoped that they would have uh, supported a moratorium, the organizers of the meeting, but they didn't quite go that far. They, they did so, say it would be irresponsible to use CRISPR in the clinic at this time, but they didn't. They said they consciously avoided using the word moratorium in their sort of take-home statement. Because mm -hmm. uh, I think there, there really uh, are some true believers there that CRISPR will have positive clinical impact. And so they didn't want to, you know, be too restrictive. And, and so it is kind of a, a tough situation to find a sweet spot where you're not uh, hampering, you know, helpful right. research in the lab. But at right. the same time, you, you want to discourage people from proceeding prematurely with, say, genetically modifying uh, the human embryos. There have been meetings, too, of sort of a multidisciplinary type with bioethicists, obviously, life scientists, physical scientists, getting together and discussing this. When those meetings have taken place, what has been the sort of uh, the, the, the gestalt? What's the sort of take home when, when those groups have convened to talk about these exact issues? Yeah, there, ha there have been a number of meetings, and I've, I've gone to some of those. And it's been quite interesting because there's, there's been sort of a, a range of opinions about it. And some people are, are much more enthusiastic to uh, – you know, step on the gas with CRISPR in the human context and other people want to step on the brake and some of us are kind of in the middle. But I think um, there's been a few sort of take-home messages from these meetings. And one is that at this point, uh, if we genetically modify uh, human beings, there would definitely be some risks to that. And, and, you know, certainly, you know, going back to the analogy of a Swiss Army knife with CRISPR, sometimes that knife will cut in the wrong place in the genome. We already know that from research studies. And so 
we might want to uh, genetically modify a disease-causing gene, for example, cystic fibrosis or uh, some other conditions are caused by mutations in one gene. And, and that's, you know, that's where CRISPR could actually have some really important benefit. But in addition, say, to cutting and rewriting the code of gene A, CRISPR can sometimes accidentally do that to gene B or C or D. And so, you know, if, if that's something that's happening in the test tube, it's kind of a bummer, but it's not the end of the world. <laughs> But if, if we're editing the wrong gene in a human embryo intended to be used to create a human being, yeah. that's a huge deal. And, and it gets to be actually pretty complicated uh, if you're thinking about making a designer baby to monitor whether we've made the right genetic modification. And uh, the other concern some people have had, um, and this has included some of the top geneticists, is that we might use CRISPR, and it might work perfectly. You know, it makes only the right genetic change, nothing wrong. But we might have been wrong about what that genetic change will actually do at a functional level. That was my next question. Do we, no. yeah, our, is our understanding of the downstream effect of the genome good enough to say if we delete gene A or modify gene A that we are with 100% certainty sure of what's going to happen down the road? The short answer is no. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Um, you know, we've actually learned a huge amount uh, in the last, I would say, two decades, especially the last decade, because genome sequencing has gotten so cheap. Right. And there's just been, you know, a fantastic number of genetic studies. But the other thing we've learned at the same time is just how complicated the genome is. And, and for example, sometimes we have a gene that we can say we're confident, you know, this is this gene and it has this function. But then hidden away inside of that gene is a sort of light switch for another gene, you know? Oh, my gosh. And, and so we might, you know, edit gene A, but there's an on-off switch for gene B inside of gene A. Right. And so that kind of thing is not that unusual in the genome. So You were an English literature major in college, I think, right? We could define that as subtext. Yeah, exactly. There's a <laughs> subtext. Uh, there's, there's a lot of complexity. There's a lot of sort of reading between the lines of the genome code right, right. that we have to do, but we haven't gotten to the point where we are knowledgeable enough, honestly, even as a collective, to know that we're doing something that will only have one consequence. Um, and do you sir, think the genome, do you think that the CRISPR technology itself, you mentioned that sometimes it'll make a cut that you don't intend. Is it right now sort of a, a blunt ax and down the road, it's going to be a laser or is it kind of, it is what it is, and this is as sharp as it's ever going to be? No, yeah, so it's evolving really fast and really quickly, and, and I would say it's, it's a laser at this point. It's already wow. pretty, it's pretty already there. good, but you know, even a laser can make mistakes. Yeah. Uh, but what's been uh, sort of remarkable to watch is you can see almost in real time with the papers that are coming out, it's getting more and more accurate, and so... That's, that's really exciting and very encouraging. And, and I would say, for example, the CRISPR today in you know, January 2016 is far superior to what it was a year or two ago. And it's probably just going to continue to improve. And so um, you know, that's, that's another argument for us uh, waiting perhaps somewhat longer before we think about using CRISPR clinically because mm -hmm. it's just going to keep getting better and better. Um, I do think it's important to make a distinction between using CRISPR in the human germline, and by that I mean, you know, like in uh, sperm or eggs or in, you know, in a fertilized egg versus using it in adult 
uh, what we call somatic cells in science. And mm-hmm. so I do think in the latter case where we might use CRISPR, for example, in um, hematopoietic stem cells in the bone marrow, that's something that people are much more comfortable with because uh, you know, you're only affecting cells in one person and you're doing this you know, perhaps in an adult. And, and, and that's something I think we could see much faster than the, than the germline modifications where mm-hmm. uh, you know, if we screw up, uh, to put it bluntly, you know, we're not just affecting one person, but you know, if they have kids and they and then they have kids, you know, right. we're talking about a whole branch of the family tree. Right. Now, is that something where are are people inquiring? Are people who have, you know, blood disorders, people who are being seen in the oncology clinics at various universities, are they inquiring, hey, is there anything here is there anything there for me yet? Are those emails and phone calls happening? Yeah, they yeah. haven't. That hasn't happened to me, but colleagues have mentioned that um, they have received phone calls and emails from patients. And the typical scenario I've heard is that these are parents to be who are aware that there's a genetic disease that runs in their family. It might be Huntington's or cystic uh-huh. fibrosis or uh, BRCA1. You know, the breast yep. cancer ovarian cancer gene. And they're contacting CRISPR researchers saying, can you help, you know, me and my partner have a, a child who won't have this mutation? And, and really, I think at this point, the, the CRISPR researchers, it's a difficult thing to know how to have that conversation. That's amazing. Uh, that is, because, yeah, that's yeah. a whole new skill set to have. It is. And, and in fact, at the National Academy of Sciences meeting in December, uh, there was question and answer periods after the talks, and, and one uh, person got up, and uh, I believe this was a scientist, but also I think she had uh, perhaps either had a child who had a genetic disease or had lost a child who had had a genetic disease. And she said, uh, to kind of paraphrase, paraphrase something along the lines, if you, can, if you can do this, and she was kind of addressing all of us scientists, then just freaking do it, you know? Wow. And so um, I do think there is uh, what people were calling at the meeting this sort of patient drive. You uh-huh. know, there's a lot of enthusiasm. Um, I was speaking at another meeting in Atlanta in December uh, where we had a panel discussion about CRISPR, and there were a number of patients in the Huntington's disease community there, and they, you know, Huntington's disease is a pretty much uniformly fatal, yes. a really tragic disease, and they were expressing a lot of interest in the possibility uh, of using you know genetic modification to to essentially help prevent cases of Huntington's disease and and I definitely have a lot of respect for the patient advocates but one thing uh, I often will tell them and I mentioned this in the book is that you know it's not a panacea but we do have an existing technology for embryo screening called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis or PGD. And, and this technology, again, not perfect, but allows for very effective screening for these kinds of genetic disease-associated mutations and parents to be can then select embryos that don't have those mutations. Um, and that's very effective. There's no modifications involved. Um, and so in most cases, I think this existing embryo screening technology would achieve uh, sort of the end result that a lot of people are hoping for, and that is to avoid these genetic diseases. There are rare instances, for example, where perhaps both parents carry a genetic disease mutation where 
this kind of embryo screening maybe will not always work. And so there, I think CRISPR could have a unique, you know, beneficial role. Mm -hmm. Are are there skill building workshops for scientists to be prepared to handle these sorts of questions? Because you obviously need to be sensitive to the needs of the person who's reaching out to you. Um, And it's a skill set. Look, we talk about this in medicine all the time, right? How do we communicate with our patients? How do we work with our colleagues? It's, it's nuts and bolts stuff. It seems like, this is going to be a skill set that's going to be in very, very high demand for those who have expertise in CRISPR. Are, are ideas being exchanged around this? Like, hey, I've had this experience and this helped, or th- these people really need help. We should accelerate working with them. What sort of conversations are happening around that? There actually are quite a few conversations going on, and there there are some meetings planned to address this kind of issue. But in a in a larger context, um, unfortunately, uh, us PhD scientists on on the PhD side of things, uh, we're not really trained in how to interact with patients or even communication more generally. And so, I think it, it can be a challenge. Uh, you know, when a scientist, for example, just any kind of scientist working on CRISPR, who a patient might you know have seen on the internet, you know, if they if this scientist receives an email or a phone call. Um, you know, it can be really challenging to know how to communicate effectively with that patient. You know, you don't want to raise their hopes. You don't want to, you know, crush their hopes. You you find some kind of uh, responsible middle ground. And so I think, uh, fortunately, there is an awareness that we need to improve in that area. And I think that that will get better. And, And from what I understand, some of the most prominent CRISPR researchers out there who perhaps, you know, patients might be most likely to call. From what I've seen, these are some very wise, you know, careful, mm. articulate people. And so I, I'm yeah. confident that they they can handle it. But for most of us, you know, I'm not sure how well we, we are prepared for that kind of patient contact. It's an interesting challenge because as this grows in the public eye, as, as you get more and more Twitter followers and now you have a book, I mean, people are going to, they're going to ask these questions. You know, we get asked difficult questions all the time and it can be, it can be a challenge and it's important to have that skill set. I think it's great though that you and your colleagues are beginning to exchange ideas and recognize, Hey, this is something that, you know, we're going to be accountable for if we're going to talk about it and be the experts in it. Part of being the experts is, is being able to answer questions, you know, in a thoughtful and compassionate manner for people who may be coming to you feeling a little desperate. Yeah, I definitely agree. And, and that was definitely one of the, another one of the things that made me want to write this book when I started the process in, in late in 2013 is that I felt like, you know, this was a book I wanted to read myself. And I went to, you know, the online booksellers and other places and I couldn't find any book. There were a couple books on the more technical side of CRISPR, but I couldn't find anything on, you know, that really addressed the nuts and bolts of human genetic modification and how CRISPR works in a way that people can understand. And so I felt like, you know, someone needs to write that book, you know, because as much as I can reach out to people on social media and things like that, there's a whole nother audience that I'm hoping at least I can reach via a, a, a book. So the thing about this book, as I was reading it, there were long stretches where I probably didn't blink. Um, there were a couple of stretches where I put my hand over my mouth as I was reading because <laughs> I couldn't believe what I was reading. And there was one picture where I burst out laughing. It's a picture of the double muscled pig. And yes. I will, I will leave it to those who you should read this book. The, <laughs> the double muscled pig, you just, it's like something out of a twilight zone episode, but it's, it's a real picture. Um, 
it, there's a chapter in the book, build a better, build a baby better via genetics. That was a hand over mouth chapter. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then the other one was the DIY guide to creating GMO sapiens, which is basically how does CRISPR help, you know, tinker with the human, the human germline. And there's amazing pictures and graphics that explain how this works. It's hard to believe that we're already here. It really, it's still, I, I, it's just unbelievable. And then as you say, it's so scalable. It, it's, it's so fast. Um, when you were writing the book, were you having that similar thing or are you so well versed in it that it's a, maybe a little bit more rote? I'm a little bit, you know, I'm used to this kind of thing, but there there were a few moments where as I was writing it and then I would see a new development like these doubled muscle pigs and I would just, you know, have a really strong reaction, like start laughing or just shake my head. And, and the double muscle pigs is a really interesting example because um, the gene that researchers tinkered with with CRISPR to make these double muscle pigs pigs. Actually, I'm not sure they use CRISPR for that, but um, there have been a number of groups that made these kinds of animals. Um, it's called myostatin, and, and that's not really important, but it's a gene that controls uh, muscle development uh, in a whole variety of, of animals, including human beings. And in fact, I, I believe there's a, a few spontaneous cases of people who have had mutations in this gene who have you know, huge muscles and, and so this gene, myostatin, has been the center of a lot of interest for some people who are, are more on the sort of pro side of let's proceed in the future with human modification. And they've talked a lot about myostatin. And so when I saw the double-muscled pigs, and then I actually also saw the double-muscled or super-muscled beagles that came out last year, <laughs> um, you know, it just makes me, again, I kind of like you, you know, hand over mouth, shaking the head, a little bit of a nervous laugh. Yeah, because because this exact same gene has been talked about as something that could be CRISPRed in human beings, and and I guess the idea would be that you know we would get uh, people who are sort of the Arnold Schwarzeneggers, you know, of the world uh, without maybe even having to lift weights or anything. And so, you know, it, it may seem outlandish or like sci-fi, but it, it really hits home when you see a picture of a beagle who's like really buff, you know, and yeah. You don't it's really- funny that you use the word sci-fi. I was just thinking, like, this is a movie treatment. This is, this is, you know, a hundred years from now, the the legions of super muscled, you know, warriors that can don't need oxygen underwater and whatever. And but this is what we're doing. It's it's ah, my heart rate goes up. It's it's, it's yeah. It's it's freaky. And you know, I I'm kind of a sci-fi fan, and I've been following you know sci-fi and fantasy for years. And and you know, if you had asked me maybe ten years ago, I would have said. You know that would make a good topic for a book, but but that's where it's so weird today because it really is something that could happen in the next yeah. few years. And you know, just to take the example again of that muscle gene, there's really no technical obstacle to someone trying to do the double muscle kind of trick in a human being. Um, you know, certainly every organism, you know, dogs, pigs, you know, they have different. You know, there's subtleties to their reproduction that are different than human beings, but it's not different in a fundamental kind of way. And, and you know, we don't know these these double muscled pigs. Um, you know, we we have no idea the double muscled dogs. Perhaps they are going to be unhealthy in other ways. Mm-hmm. Um, I do know. I think in the case of, I think it was. I wasn't sure if it was the dog or the pigs that there was some difficulty for the mothers, those animals, in delivering those. Uh, baby animals because they were so big. And so 
that's just one example of, you know, there can be these unintended consequences and it gets kind of, you know, almost creepy when we think about doing this in human beings, if we're not ready and, you know, then, then you have the question who decides if we are ready. Who decides if, if we're ready, right? Yeah. Who decides if we're ready? And, and certainly, you know, again, if we, if we turn things back a notch and we talk about preventing genetic disease, that seems really legitimate and exciting in, in certain cases. But the thing that's often come up these meetings we've been talking about is where do we draw the line? Yes. You know? And and certainly some some genes that might seem like no brainers to target like the BRCA one gene that causes so much, you know, unhappiness and problems with health. And, you know, even people who don't end up getting breast or ovarian cancer, perhaps they spend their lives in fear or they get a double mastectomy prophylactically. You know, these things are serious and they have a lot of negative consequences. So it seems like a no-brainer, you know, for example, to try to revert a BRCA1 mutation back to wild type. But even in that case, you know, that's the BRCA1 mutation is not a case of, uh, you know, what we would call genetic determinism. Not everyone with that mutation will have cancer. You know, so many people never get cancer. And so in that case, it's, it's essentially we're lowering the risk, you know, of a problem. And so someone might say, you know, hey, we found another gene that, you know, it doesn't necessarily cause autism, but it increases the risk. You know, should we try to revert that gene, you know, back to a quote unquote safer uh, situation? And, and so there can be sort of this, uh, you know, gradations of scale, like there's some gray area where we're not necessarily preventing disease, but we might be lowering risk. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And for all we know, we might be enhancing other traits, like you might make a genetic change to lower risk of Alzheimer's disease or autism. But what if you end up creating people who have a higher IQ, you know, at the same time, Yeah. and someone wants to commercialize that. And, you know, certainly, um, you know, there's definitely some great intentions out there, but it's often hard to kind of keep this kind of thing in a in a bottle, especially yeah. when someone might be able to make a lot of money off of it. I mean, you can just go down the rabbit hole with uh, with the if thens, and the yeah. and, and that's it's a little bit daunting. Um, as as these conversations go forward, where are the where are the safety checkpoints? Where are the things that can that will help people to say that this is going to be done responsibly because we're on the cusp of something that is, I think, as, as wired in science. And you have talked about that, you know, once it's, once it's crispered, you can't go back, right? Once you crisper a gene, you can't uncrisper it. So once we do this, we're off to the races. Is that a fair statement? I, I think it is. I, I definitely know there are research out, researchers out there who talk about reversing CRISPR. Mm -hmm. You know, if we edit a gene and the result is is something we don't expect and negative, you know, they claim we can re-CRISPR it back, you know, or do like a reverse CRISPR. Or, oh I'm not God. really convinced that we could easily do that, especially if we've if we've done this kind of intervention in a fertilized egg, then every cell in that human being's body will right. have the genetic change. And if it's a negative one, I don't see how we turn back the clock, you know, yeah. those trillions of cells. So I think it can be pretty difficult to reverse. And so, you know, thinking about safeguards, I think the safest thing is to be kind of as proactive as we can be in discouraging people from jumping ahead, uh, you know, and doing human uh, genetic modification when we're clearly not ready. At the same time, you know, I don't know how much we can do beyond discouraging them. You know, again, 
we've talked about some countries have laws on this, but but other countries don't. And so, you know, if someone is really motivated, say, to try to be famous by being the first one to ever genetically modify a human being, you know, they can probably find a place if they have sufficient funding. They can probably find a fertility clinic and hire a surrogate. And, and so I don't know that we can stop every potential rogue player from doing this. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the same time, I don't think, you know, if, if a few people are born, a few babies are born with genetic modifications, I don't think it's like the whole world is going to screech to a halt. <laughs> uh, it's going to be, I think it's going to be kind of scary. But where I get more concerned is if this kind of thing could catch on, you know, and, um, and, and we can't really be wise enough to foresee all the consequences yeah. and, and you know, that's where I think we could find ourselves in trouble in five or 10 years. It's a fascinating study of the collision between science, commerce, fame, and notoriety. It's a heady mixture and it, it definitely drives and fuels ambition. Um, and it will be, it's just, it's, it's evolving right before us on a day to day basis. Um, this is fascinating. And, and I think that, uh, what you've brought to the table here has will help elucidate this this issue for a lot of people, and I, I'm I'm grateful, but I'm I don't know if I'm more or less daunted than before. The book is is a fascinating read. It's a very accessible read. You've done a great job with it. It's not a book for the grad student or the PhD. It's a book that I think most people can really sit down with and 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 get something really really fascinating out of and learn a lot about something that's on the it's on the front burner. GMO Sapiens is the book. You're a great Twitter follow. What's your Twitter handle? Uh it's it's a long one. It's uh it's P K N O E P F L E R. Unfortunately, it's pretty long. I don't have a catchy one, but if you just search on Twitter for Paul Knopfler, uh, I'll pop up there. And I'm actually, I'm going to set up a Twitter account for GMO sapiens as well. I actually have that, but I just haven't really gotten it going. Fantastic. We will have links for all of those on the website, uh, explore the space show.com as well. Um, this is a fascinating discussion. As things evolve, we're gonna we're gonna reach out to you again to help answer some of these questions and also just to keep us up to date uh, because it it becomes a bit of a muddle when you're trying to follow this in popular media. So hopefully you'll be able to come back in a few months and and join us and kind of keep us up to date on on how things are evolving and what's changing. I would be happy to. Thanks, Mark. Thank you so much. This was fantastic. All right. Thanks. Thank you for listening to Explore the Space. Visit us on our website, explorethespaceshow.com, and please subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at ETS Show, and you can email Dr. Shapiro by writing to mark at explorethespaceshow.com.